In this episode of Influencers, Katie Couric, former Today Show host and author of Going There. I think that people who spread it, who are quote unquote super spreaders, should be held liable for spreading this dis- disinformation, whether it's about COVID or vaccines or about Sandy Hook. I think journalism is still a really noble profession. Um, The problem is so much of journalism has seeped into commentary. I hope that I'll be seen as somebody, you know, who did what my father told me my entire life. Do your best. And that's what I've done. Hello, everyone. I'm Andy Serwer, and welcome to Influencers. And welcome to our guest, Katie Couric, of course, former host of the Today Show, CBS Evening News, co-founder of Katie Couric Media and author of the book, Going There, and my former colleague at Yahoo, which we'll get to, I'm sure. Katie, welcome. Great to see you. Hi, Andy. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course. Uh, Why don't we start out before we talk about the book? I'm curious to know about Katie Couric Media and what you're up to and what's that all about? Well, I love sort of being the boss of me as our kids used to say, Andy. And about three and a half years ago, my husband and I saw that the media landscape was changing dramatically. I actually noticed that over the past decade or so. And instead of depending on, you know, people to give me a job. I decided I wanted to be a job creator. I wanted to try my hand at being an entrepreneur and that I thought the brand that I had established over 30 to 40 years in media was as powerful as some of the bigger brands and would be enable me to really personalize the news and view it from my perspective. So we decided to be pan media. We have a newsletter that goes over, goes out to well over uh, half a million people with a very high engagement rate. We have a podcast. I'm going to be recruiting other talent to contribute. And we already have done that. We have somebody who's our book editor. We have a very uh, vibrant relationship with Bobby Brown, also who used to be at Yahoo. And so we're really establishing a collective of voices. And in the meantime, I'm also developing documentaries. I have a couple of scripted projects in development. I was an executive producer of a series on Netflix called Unbelievable. And I, what I realized, Andy, is storytelling has changed dramatically. It's no longer siloed. You can, disintermediation allows you to go direct to consumer just as brands are doing. And we now have about 35 people working uh, at the company. And really what I'm trying to do, we also have a shop that um, you know has pics of what we think are purpose-driven brands and female-founded, BIPOC-founded, LGBTQ plus-founded companies that we're supporting and, and really shining a light on. So it's been really exciting because you know it's hard working for a big lumbering bureaucratic organization at times. And I find that I can be much more nimble 
and I can create content at the drop of the hat, a drop of a hat, or I can do longer profiles and series and really explore topics I'm interested in that I think are worthy of a listener or reader or viewer's attention. It's interesting you're talking about the business model with regard to your new endeavor, Katie. And, and I want to ask you about that a little bit because we're seeing a lot of entrepreneurism in media, but of course you have to have a P&L and making money. Um, how's that going? And how do you compare yourselves to a lot of other things that people are doing that are similar? It's going really well, Andy. You know, what we're doing is we're collaborating with purpose-driven brands who care about issues. As you know, if you pay attention, and I know you do, Andy, to things like the Edelman Trust Barometer, the Business Roundtable, as trust in media institutions, government, and politics writ large has declined, a lot of people are looking to companies to take up the slack to address societal issues that are really um, front and center now, whether it's gender equality, racial justice, environmental sustainability, things that people really care about. Consumers really care about the brands they support and brands really care about taking a stand on these issues. As you know, from the Edelman Trust Barometer, uh, many employees now expect their CEOs to take positions on some of these thorny issues facing society. So it's a really interesting uh, intersection for me with stories I care about, issues I care about, and companies that want to support explaining these issues. So we work with companies like Procter & Gamble, Ally Financial, Exact Sciences, that is really on the forefront of, of, of cancer research and really exciting developments and diagnostics. Right. And then we do storytelling around those. Now, we're not limited to those companies but they provide uh, the engine and the financial support that allow us to do the work we wanna do. Sometimes I'll do stories that have nothing to do with some of our partners just because I'm interested, or they may be stories that they don't really wanna get involved in. If I wanted interviews to Seal Richards about the threat to women and reproductive rights in this country, that might right. not be something that a brand wants to align themselves with. But in many cases, the subjects I'm interested in are the causes that they care about. Can this kind of media really replace the news? And, and are there conflicts there that, say, traditional news organizations don't have, Katie? Yeah, you know, I think that, you know, I'm not out to replace the great work that journalists all across the country are doing, Andy. This is just a model that, that we are using and that is really working for us. I'm very discriminating about the stories I do and the topics I cover. Um, and after 40 years in business, I feel like I've earned the right to do that. But it's not necessarily for everyone. But you know, you look at news organizations and there is branded content and we make it clear that we're partnering with certain companies when it comes to telling stories but that doesn't mean those stories are not really important or not worth telling. And by the way, I have complete editorial control over the way we tell these stories. So I would say it's brand supported, not branded content. And so I think there's a real difference in that. 
What do you think about TV news right now, Katie? And you know, we're seeing the emergence of streaming services like CNN Plus, and what does that mean for the industry? How would you describe it? Well, I think it's just another way to provide interesting content to consumers. Um, you know, it'll be interesting to see if people are going to pay for those services uh, when there is so much news everywhere. I mean, I'm just inundated with, with news 24-7, and a lot of it is really high quality. I was just reading a great piece this morning on Joe Manchin and the Rolling Stone that uh, someone brought my attention to. So I think it'll be an interesting experiment to see if people are going to want that content. Will they want to see Chris Wallace uh, doing interviews? I'm not sure. Maybe hardcore Chris Wallace fans will, but it seems to me that there is so much news. It's so ubiquitous now um, that they're going to have to provide something that is really unique. And I think they're trying to do that with sort of the model of Anthony Bourdain, which, you know, was established on CNN many years ago with Eva Longoria. You know, I just I just don't know at what point, I guess, is it content overload, Andy? You know, yeah. is there just so much to choose from? Will the cream still rise to the top? Probably. But will it be enough to sustain some of these newer business models? I'm not sure. Right. And then ubiquity is both a blessing and a curse from the consumer standpoint, because there is so much out there. But then how do you choose? And so I'm sure you're asked this question, Katie. People ask me all the time. What do you look at? What do you read? And how do you decide what to look at when there is so much stuff? Well, you know, I do rely primarily on newsletters and on Apple News and um you know, I remember when I was at Yahoo with you, Andy, I begged for them to let me start a newsletter that would basically go straight to people's inboxes and help kind of curate the things they needed to know. Um, you know, they, they weren't interested in that at Yahoo for a variety of reasons, which we can talk about later and sort of what Yahoo's ultimate business goals were at the time. But um, you know, I read a lot of newsletters. I try to read The Economist. I look at Time Magazine. I read The New York Times, The Washington Post. I read various newsletters from reporters from those outlets. Um, I read uh, The Pointer Institute. Tom Jones does a media newsletter. The Pew uh, Center Research Center does kind of what's going on in media. I'm interested in kind of looking at trends. I read the information by Jessica Lesson. Um, so I really try to get a, a, a good cross-section of, of helpful and useful information. And sometimes I just look at Apple News and see what's trending and if there are articles that I'm interested in. Um, and uh, I, I feel like I, I really get a good sense of what's going on in the world with the uh, amalgam of, of sources that I turn to. It's almost like a full-time job though. Keep yeah, it right? is. And I, mean, I, I think I, I did something with the New York Times with the buy the books section. And I said, you know, I could spend five hours in bed in the morning reading everything that I either find or that is served up to me. And that's one of the reasons I wanted to start Wake Up Call is people don't necessarily have time to be glued to their phones. It's not particularly healthy for them to to 
be so attached to their devices. So by curating some interesting things they need to know, I'm providing almost an old-fashioned newspaper in the form of a newsletter with consumer stories, with important uh, news stories that they need to know, using other sources, doing original reporting uh, with our incredible staff on wake-up calls. So, you know, I think that what's missing is what we had in the old days, and this is good and bad news, Sandy, is somebody to actually edit content, to prioritize things through, you know, how important they are to help kind of um, illuminate certain topics. The problem is back in the good old days, there were a lot of voices that were not heard, you know, and, and it was the domain of, you know, primarily white men. And so, the idea that all these different voices now have a platform is a really positive development. Yeah, there's a lot to pick up on there. I want to especially talk about the tech companies. You mentioned Apple News, but I do want to get into going there. You talked about white men dominating the media business. So that's a bit of a segue into your book. Um, your book is so candid. I really enjoyed it. Um, and I could see how things were cherry picked out. Yeah, where it came out. I, I, I got it once I read the whole book. Right. That was frustrating. But that's unfortunately kind of our modern media environment. You yeah. know, people are trying to get clickbait. They're trying to get engagement through enragement. Um, they're trying to get people to stay on sites to, as I said, click things. And as a result, I think things are distorted. You know, this is a tale as old as time, at least as old as the Internet and perhaps even newspapers, but I think it's much more um, obvious online is that, you know, the headlines often have nothing to do with the content of the story or the story itself is so twisted. So to attract eyeballs and viewers and time spent, um, you know, on, on said platform. So I think it was really actually an interesting object lesson in how the media environment works today, at least tabloid media. I, I can't say that all media does it, but it was frustrating that even mainstream media, people who hadn't read the book would then repeat what was on the tabloids or what was in the tabloids. And that's just, um, unfortunately, when you're a bold-faced name, that's, that happens. Yeah, you put together that desire for clicks plus the political orientation, then it blows up. And then the mainstream, to your point, has to report on it because it's a story. So how can we ignore it? You know, it just yeah. becomes this cycle. I, you know I the wanna, drill. Yeah, I do. Um, so candid, though, in your book, you talk about racism historically in your family, your marriages, and of course, your friendship with Matt Lauer. Why did you choose to be so open? Why not? I can't imagine writing a book, Andy, and not being honest about my experiences. What would be the point? Uh, to sanitize things. I really wanted to talk openly and honestly about my life experiences. And um, I can't imagine doing it any other way. What would be the point? Uh, you know, My Perfect Life by Katie Couric. Um, first well, of people all, do that. People do write those. Yeah, and, they, and, they, and, they're, and they're super boring and, yeah. um, and not very illuminating or enlightening. I think that it was really important for me to be honest about 
what I experienced. And, you know, I, I, I couldn't imagine doing it any other way. I wanted to be transparent about mistakes I made, my own shortcomings and blind spots, decisions I made that, you know, that I now wonder about. Um, you know, I thought it was important for me to talk about my own family history, especially when we're talking about systemic racism, when we're talking about cultural conditioning and, you know, all those things that have now almost become uh, predictable buzzwords, but are really worth examining, I think, Andy. And, um, and so I wanted to kind of, as I said in the prologue, show the whole me, the forces that shape me, my family, that shaped me, even my ancestors, that uh, that shaped shaped our family generationally, or at least mm -hmm. in some ways, you know, helps helps me understand where we are now because of where we were then. Dis you know, as I said, how how issues like race were covered. Um, I think that what I did was present a microcosm of a life experience that very much is reflective of our national experience and, and the national reckoning that we've all been required and, and wanted to, I think, um, experience in the wake of some of these massive cultural and social changes. Sort of a personal reckoning that's emblematic of what society has been going through. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Right. And, and I think, you know, I'm a big fan of Brian Stevenson and, you know, that requires an honest appraisal of your own complicity, your own behavior, your own actions. Um, collectively as a country, we have to do that. And I didn't want to be a hypocrite and not do that personally while people, you know, are asking each other that, you know, or, or, or there's an emphasis on doing it as a nation if that makes sense. It makes sense. Sometimes people hate being asked, what inning are we in? Questions, Katie? I mean, you know, it's funny asking you questions because you know all these tricks, but what <laughs> inning are we in when it comes to a reckoning with women and diversity in the workplace? I mean, are we, is it early days, middle days, end <clears throat> times? I think it's, you know, I think it's early days. Um, but I think maybe early to middle days, Andy, you know, I think this is so important and I think it, you know, you can't just wave a magic wand. Um, it's, it, there's, there's so many factors, I think, contributing to this imbalance of power that have been entrenched in our society for decades, if not centuries. And so one of the things that I hope we can do is have honest conversations about this. I think that's so imperative. And if my book models that, then that's something I'm really pleased about. Um, because I think what happens is, um, you know, there, there's, there's progress and then there's a backlash. There's progress and then there's a backlash. And I think having open and honest conversations and not, you know, canceling people because they say the wrong thing or not uh, rejecting them, uh, out of hand because of the way that they see things, which, and their pro products of their own environments is a really important component 
to leveling the playing field for everyone. You write a course about, we talked about Matt Lauer, or, or I mentioned him, I should say, in The Problems and Les Moonves. Are men in TV and entertainment worse than other businesses, or is it just that they're more high profile? You know, it's hard for me to answer that question, Andy, because I haven't really been in other businesses. No. Um, but having said that, I do think they're more high profile. I think there's probably uh, uh, a little more, um, you know, it's not exactly a low key or low profile industry. So I think probably the ego level of men in television in general and sort of media um, is probably feeds into or fed, <clears throat> excuse me, fed into certain behavior for many, many years. <clears throat> so I think that, um, you know, I think it was just sort of business as usual. It was sort of uh, the status quo for this kind of behavior, I think it was not only tolerated, but in some cases encouraged in television news. And especially as women were entering that, that industry in significant numbers, I think we forget that, you know, I graduated from college, Andy, in 1979. And this was when women were really entering the workplace in, in big numbers. And so it was male dominated for quite a while. Women were in positions that were dependent on their male bosses. So that created a dynamic that just, um, I think, opened up for a lot of abuses. That, uh, and add to that kind of the culture that existed, you know, a, a bit of Hollywood, we're going to make you a star, I control your fate you are uh, subservient to me. And I think that provided a recipe for that kind of um, really unacceptable behavior. Do any of them come back or, or should they be allowed to come back? We're talking about canceling people and people paying the price. I think a lot of it depends on your response to the allegations, I think people who recognize, I think James Franco did something very interesting that we haven't seen with a lot of these men who had been, um, and I, I think that, I don't know, we could have a whole conversation of the word canceled. Um, you know, I think they were removed with cause. You know, I think canceled yeah. sometimes suggests that a small, uh, you know, a, a, a smaller or, or infraction or whatever was overly penalized. So um, I, I think James Franco talked about, you know, getting help, acknowledging his issues and trying to understand the damage that he did. And I think that other people should probably take a page from that playbook and do some serious introspection and then try to kind of contribute to you know, be the change they that we hope to see, instead of kind of uh, digging in in their heels. But you know, I think I think with any kind of social movement, there there is bound to be some collateral damage. Right. Good. Good point about how I use the word cancel. By the way. So well, I mean, I no, think no, no, I appreciate that. 
No, yeah, you're right. You are spot on. Interpretation, you no, know. No, you were you were spot on. Um, I want to switch over and, and get back to some of those tech companies and the platforms a little bit um, because they're so powerful, and you know you're relying on them. We're relying on them. We're one of them in a way. Um, but Facebook, Twitter, um, how are you thinking about them, Katie? Are they to blame for the widespread? Um, proliferation of misinformation? Should they be held responsible? Should they be broken up? I mean, there are a thousand big questions there, but just your <clears throat> thousand foot take. You know, it's, um, I wish I were even, uh, you probably are more of an expert on this, Andy, than I am. I was a co-chair of the Aspen Commission on Disinformation, and obviously we took a close look at some of these platforms. I mean, I think uh, the problem with disinformation in our society is very multidimensional, but the algorithms and the way things are shared and amplified certainly, I think, have been uh, have been fueled by these social media platforms. You know, it's also lack of trust in in mainstream media or more traditional media outlets, and also the democratization of information where everyone who has a digital device or an iPad or a computer can spread misinformation and disinformation and malinformation. And so I think that we really do need to look, take a close look at um, the liability of, of, of some of these platforms that claim they are not a publisher, that they're just a platform and Congress should get involved. I think the federal government needs to have a more unified um, approach because I don't think there's really a centralized uh, policy arm of the government to deal with this. President Obama says disinformation is the biggest threat to our, our democracy. Certainly when you look at things like the big lie and the fact that more than 60 uh, you know, courts and judges have said there's no merit to the argument that the election was rigged, that it was a, one of the fairest elections in our history. But the fact that this persists, that a huge percentage of the public and particularly the Republican Party continues to believe that the election was rigged, obviously they're getting this information and it's being reinforced over and over again. You know, people gave me a hard time because when I was on Bill Maher, I talked about the need for people to be deprogrammed, which really meant just kind of separating themselves from, from you know, the, the information that they're being uh, almost brainwashed to believe through the, you know, repeated serving up of disinformation. So I think we need to take a multi- Prong uh, approach, Andy, and and get everyone involved. And I think that people who spread it, who are quote unquote super spreaders, should be held liable for spreading this dis disinformation, whether it's about COVID or vaccines or about Sandy Hook. And uh, you know, I think that platforms need to be more aggressive about monitoring it. Of course, the problem, and it's not a problem, but the, the sticky wicket in America is, is free speech. And how do you balance free speech with um, the need to 
have outright lies be, um, you know, be removed and not, not see the light of day where unfortunately an audience is receptive to believing them. Yeah, it it's goes a back complicated to, topic, isn't right. it, Andy? But it all does go back to, can you yell fire in a crowded theater? I mean, it's, it's also timeless, but now it's just this new way of getting the information that's sort of, you know, it's a super spreader. Yeah, you know, and I think the Supreme Court, the right. Supreme Court said you cannot yell fire it's, in a crowded that they, theater. You're and, absolutely right. And, they and, did. and similarly, right. you know, I think, this is the the semantic version yes. uh, of yelling fire in a crowded theater, and um, you know I think I think the technology has almost uh, outrun the ethical considerations of all this. But it's it's a really serious problem. I think it's shaping up to even be more serious in 2024, and so it's something that that we need to pay attention to. I want to ask you a little bit about yourself, just to kind of wrap things up here. Um, I was going to ask you if you would let your kids or tell your kids to get into journalism, but I think one of them is. Um, yeah. So I'm wondering how you feel about that or what you would tell young people or young women, maybe in particular, about journalism. Journalism is so important, and there's some amazing, high-quality, excellent journalism that's being done on a daily basis. Um, so. I think journalism is still a really noble profession. Um, the problem is so much of journalism has seeped into commentary. And, you know, there's a big argument going on in newsrooms across the country. When should you be an advocate? And when should you be a journalist? And is there a way to be both? Um, so, you know, my daughter is working on a documentary about the origins of the conservative movement and William F. Buckley in particular. And uh, she was an American studies major at Stanford. She is extremely smart. And I think exploring this is really, really interesting and really important. Um, and so I think that we need to have great people attracted to journalism. We need smart, curious young people, men and women, and people who represent this country demographically. So we're talking about people from all kind of socio socioeconomic backgrounds, Andy, people from different, who've had different experiences uh, because of their race and ethnicity. We need to be kind of this great American quilt. You know, by 2044, white people will be in the minority in this country. And we just need to make sure that our journalists represent the people they're serving. Um, having said that, I do think we need to look at the model of journalism, and I know a lot of people are thinking about this and talking about it. How can we restore trust in the media? How can we be less polarized and speak to just one audience or the other? Um, I think that's a really challenging question, but I think it, it's one that deserves a lot of attention and thought, and I think we need a lot of people, young people, smart young people, um, who can maybe look at it and look at it in a different way. And, you know, are we forever going to be siloed and have, you know, our, our, our own information? My friend, Nicole Seligman, talks about affirmation instead of information. 
You know, I think these are all big, heady, meaty topics and, and we need the greatest minds in the country to focus on them. So, you know, I would encourage people, especially idealistic people to go into journalism. Great, we're almost out of time, Katie. So quickly, if you can, what do you see as your legacy? Um, well, I hope that I contributed to the national conversation and help people understand complicated issues. I hope that, um, you know, I hope that I, I helped show that women were capable and that, um, you know, it's interesting to think about the fact that in 2006, it was such a big deal to have a woman do the evening news. And now we see the evening news is you know, declining in terms of its influence and importance. They still have a lot of people watching, but much older demographics. And I think very few young people are watching the network evening newscasts. But I hope that I helped, um, you know, move the ball a little bit forward for women. Um, you know, it wasn't easy. I write extensively about my experience at CBS. And I think, um, you know, I was met with a lot of resistance there, uh, partially because I think, uh, well, there are a whole lot of reasons which I detail in the book. Um, but I hope that I, I moved the ball forward for women, uh, whether it was asking that I had a 50-50 division of labor on the Today Show with Brian Bryant Gumbel or, you know, took the leap and became the first solo female anchor of an evening newscast. And I also hope that I that I try to explore important topics and do it honestly, and that I have the vulnerability and humility, humility to say when there were times when I didn't get it right. I don't know any journalists who have batted a thousand for decades. And I think that you know, I'm proud of myself that I had the courage to say, maybe I could have done something differently or why did I approach a topic this way? Or here were some of the factors that were influencing me when I was making decisions. Because when all is said and done, journalists are human beings. They're not perfect. They try, I think, to do the best job they can, mostly. Um, and so I hope that I'll be seen as somebody, you know, who did what my father told me my entire life, do your best. And that's what I've done. And sometimes, um, you know, it's, it's been great. And sometimes I've fallen on my face, but um, to me, that's, that's kind of a life well lived. And the ability to admit that is, I think, takes a lot of guts. Katie Kirk, thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Andy. You've been watching Influencers. I'm Andy Serwer. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Influencers. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And follow Yahoo Finance on Twitter at Yahoo Finance and at Serwer.